that's where we are here again in, in Matthew. And so as we come to the baseball screen, <laughs> as we come to Matthew chapter one, 21, uh, this, this chapter begins, and we've covered the first kind of section of this chapter. And so back early in December, chapter 21 begins with the account of Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. We call it Palm Sunday. We're familiar with the Palm Sunday story. We we know that well. Jesus riding on the colt, uh, the crowds gathering, laying their cloaks and on the road before him, waving their palm branches, the whole scene, uh, men and women and children crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that Palm Sunday um, is unique kind of, it's unique in the time of Jesus' ministry because at that point in time, he moved away from his regular practice in his dealing with the crowds. Um, you know, his, his usual uh, practice uh, with the crowds was to resist their desire to thrust him into the limelight of, as, you know, essentially the king, the king of Israel and, and the kingship. And instead... Uh, with meekness, with lowliness, he, com- he comes into the city and he welcomes their praise. He welcomes the proclamation that, that he is the son of David. He welcomes their worship. And it's as if to say as he rides into Jerusalem, he's saying, I am the king and the kingdom is mine. It's good, man. You can just leave it off. Thanks. Uh, the... The kingdom is mine and I am the king. And, and at issue with those who, uh, um, at issue for those who took it all in those years ago is the issue that's really forced upon our lives this morning too as we, we look at this story. It's like this. Will, will we accept Jesus as king? Will we welcome his kingdom into our lives? Will we reject or accept Jesus as king? And so Matthew tells us from the triumphal entry into the, temp, the Temple Mount. I don't know. I kind of think that the Temple Mount story of him, Jesus, going in and uh, clearing the temple and driving it all out probably happened on Monday. We're entering the Passion Week in Matthew's, in Matthew's gospel. And so into the temple, this is, uh, we recall the first time that Jesus went into the temple and he cleared it out. He fashioned a whip. And he did that three years earlier at uh, the start of his ministry he fashioned a whip drove out the money changers and those that are buying and selling and he declared my father's house house shall be called a house of prayer well this is the second time jesus comes into the temple it's in matthew's gospel the first time that he tells us about jesus really coming to into jerusalem into the temple and this time jesus goes back there and he clears it out again kicks over the tables drives out the money changers drives out those who are buying and selling animals and and this time rather than declaring my father's house shall be a house of prayer he makes a personal claim as the son of god doesn't say my father's house he says my house my house shall be called a house of prayer but you have made it a den of robbers and so this whole scene goes down the confrontation in there the children worshiping the confrontation with the leadership and that night, Jesus headed out of the city and it tells us in chapter, verse 17 of chapter 21 that he went to the village of Bethany. Uh, you got to suppose he probably went to stay with Lazarus and Martha and, and Mary in their home. And that was his practice throughout that week of the passion leading up to uh, the cross that every night he headed out of the city of Jerusalem to the outlying villages, the outlying village of Bethany, and he stayed there except one night. The night where he only went as far as the Garden of Gethsemane, that night he was betrayed. And so we pick it up here, and here's Jesus. He's out in the village of Bethany, and Matthew tells us the next morning, after this clearing out of the temple, uh, it's Tuesday, it's Tuesday before the cross. Uh, Actually, it's kind of interesting that from where we are in this text now all the way through chapter 24, this is going to make up one teaching that Jesus gave on Tuesday at the temple. It's going to take us, obviously, a few weeks to get through it, but we're going to crack into it this morning, the Tuesday before uh, crucifixion. So let's pick it up in, in verse 18. In the morning, 
As he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and he found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When his disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith, and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to this fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Story of the fig tree. I love figs. Anybody else love figs? Like fresh figs? Like dried figs? Amen, man. I always got a bag of figs in my fridge, man. I'm always picking away at figs. That's like my snack. Just yummy. So here's Jesus. He's on the way back to Jerusalem. He's hungry. He spots the fig tree. Matthew tells us it was a fig tree that was by the wayside. And uh, fig trees are a tree. They're kind of interesting. They're a tree that uh, produces fruit and then leaves. It's like kind of backwards. You know, I always think springtime, the leaves come and then the fruit. But a fig tree is the opposite. The, the fruit begins to form and then the leaves come afterwards. And so... As Jesus is coming down the road and he spots this tree that's covered with leaves, you would assume something. It's got leaves, so there should be fruit there. There should be fruit tucked in behind those leaves. And so naturally, Jesus went to the tree because the tree professed, I have fruit. I have fruit here. And so he went and he looked, but what he found was no fruit, only leaves. Strange thing. Um, and so he does something that's kind of really strange. I mean, don't you read this and think, this is weird. He like curses the tree. He curses the tree and it withered at once. In fact, the other gospels tell us, I don't know what you picture as you think of this tree withering, but the other gospels tell us that it withered from its roots. So, you know, I don't know. Instead of thinking this way, it started to wither from the outside in. Think about it this way. It, it started to wither from the ground up the trunk. And the disciples watched this whole thing happen right in front of their eyes. Here was this tree that had all the appearances of health. It advertised fruit. The leaves made an, I don't know, an outward profession of a vigorous life. But closer inspection, as Jesus goes and looks, it reveals that despite the boast, this tree was actually barren. May no fruit ever come from you again. And at once, the fig tree withered. Now, can you imagine just being there? Disciples, I mean, we get it. They're totally in awe. They see this happen before their eyes. The tree wither up. And this is unique. I mean, you think about all the time they spent with Jesus, all the miracles that he had done. This actually is called the first, it's his only miracle of a judgment. That's what they say about this, about this miracle. And it almost seems kind of strange and vindictive, but what we need to see is that this, that this is not a vindictive act of Jesus. It's symbolic. It's symbolic of a, of a judgment. See, all throughout the Old Testament, we see that the fig tree represents a highly favored people. We know who they are? The nation of Israel. The fig tree represents Israel, a nation that was called to be a light to the world. A nation that at that time had so much to offer all of the world because they were, uh, they had the covenants, you know, they had the word of God. They they had the temple. They were called as a nation to be a light to the world. They had so much to offer the world. Much like the church. I mean, think about it. They were God's representatives on the earth. A light to the Gentiles. Abraham was the man of faith. The, man, the very first man of faith that we read about really in the scripture. Justified by faith. Abraham. Just like you and I. Justified by faith. But his descendants grew insular, you know, self-serving. Their relationship from, with God downgraded from something of faith into religion, you know. You guys know me. I always think of religion in bad terms. <laughs> I don't think it would have been a good, a good thing. It, it, their faith had downgraded to works and acts and ceremonies and this and that. And they made the mistake of thinking that, that the work of God was really all about them, that they were at the center of his story. 
And what they failed to see was that God had called them to be a people of faith. He had called them to be the light of the world. And the story wasn't really about them. It was about him and about his glory. And they were to live for his glory and for his purposes. And they were to produce fruit. Their lives were to produce fruit. And so Jesus came looking for fruit. He came to Jerusalem. He came on that colt that day. He came into the city. He looked around and then he went back to the temple and he was looking for fruit. And really, he found nothing but leaves. It was just the day before when we read this, this cursing of the fig tree, it was just the day before that the religious leaders of the nation revealed the barrenness of their own fruitlessness, their own fruitless lives. When they became indignant, they got mad at Jesus in the temple and they demanded that he stop the praises of children. The kids who were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. And so this cursing of the fig tree was a a symbolic act of judgment on Israel and the judgment that was about to come upon them. But it's interesting, the, the disciples, as they see this whole thing unfold, they, they, ask, they ask Jesus and, and he doesn't explain to them the symbolic judgment. Instead, he gives them a, a practical application about faith and about prayer. Picking up on the disciples' comments about the swift death of the, the tree, Jesus gives them a lesson on faith and a lesson on prayer. You know, as um, we look at the rest of this chapter, chapter this morning, there's kind of two themes that I think drive through and I'm going to give them to you as we begin to make our way through the chapter. The first one is this, that for each one of us, for for these folks, for you and I, you have to own or you have to reject faith in Jesus with your eyes wide open. Jesus brings every one of us to this place. He's always revealing himself and opening our eyes and, and he brings us to this place where With our eyes wide open, we will either receive him or we will reject him. And we're going to just watch him opening the eyes of these people. And the second theme is this, is that Jesus is God's last appeal. He's it. Jesus is God's last appeal to his creation for faith. The last appeal for belief. And so Jesus gives these disciples, a lesson on faith, a lesson that's good for you and I. See, behind the symbolic cursing of a nation lay a problem at the root. The root withered first. And we say this in, in church sometimes, the fruit reveals the root. If you look at my life, look at your life, the fruit reveals what's at the core. The fruit reveals what's at the root of our lives. And the mysterious fruitlessness of this tree was a picture of Israel. It was a picture of Israel's unbelief. What's the opposite of faith? The opposite of faith is unbelief. Unbelief. And this nation was a nation that was rooted in faith. Abraham the first, the father of many. A man of faith. Abraham, the man of faith, justified by faith. And this was a nation and a people that were nurtured in faith and they were to be a people of faith. And the lesson for the disciples was this, a warning from Jesus that they not falter when it comes to faith, belief. Jesus said this, truly, if you have faith, And do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Jesus said, faith can remove the largest of mountains. Faith can remove the greatest obstacle in your life. I, I like this discussion. Like, you know, sometimes I think about, I think about faith and I hear some people talk about faith from time to time, some Christians. And to me, it's like, there seems to be almost a fine line between faith and superstition. You ever wonder that? Like, you ever hear that when people make these faith statements sometimes? They almost seem to put their faith in faith. Or they, their faith is really abstract. It's, you know, faith and 
believing in their ability to have faith. I have faith. I have faith. And they believe that their ability to have faith and not doubt is going to bring forth the desired end as they pray. But the object of faith is not faith. The object of faith is not our ability to believe. The object of faith is the Lord. Is the Lord. You know the greatest obstacle between me and the Lord, between you and the Lord? It's sin. Sin's a mountain I can't move. I cannot move the mountain of sin in my life. That's the greatest obstacle between us and the Lord. But we know the story of the cross. That Jesus on the cross paid the price for my sin. He paid the price for your sin. And when I put my faith in Jesus, he moves the mountain I can't move. He removes the obstacle that stood in the way between him and I when I trust him for eternal life and for my salvation. The greatest obstacle between me and him is removed. See, faith is the link to the power of the cross. Faith isn't the power. Where's the power? The cross is the power. Paul said the gospel is the power of God. Faith isn't the power. The gospel is the power for salvation unto everyone who believes. And so when Jesus came looking for fruit, he found none because unbelief had made its way into the root system of the people's lives. Just like it can make the, its way into the root system of your life and my life. So Jesus said, no, have faith. Seek God in prayer. Whatever you ask for in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. I, I think, I, I love that verse. It's wide open, isn't it? It's so gracious on Jesus' behalf, so loving. You just ask, man. You come before me in faith, and you ask. There's awesome potential in what Jesus says. In fact, it's so awesome. I'm, I don't, I'm not dumbing that down in any sense. It's like wide open from Jesus. Come in faith. Ask. Receive. You know, elsewhere he said, ask and you will receive. Seek, you will find. Knock, and the door will be open to you. And really, this whole scene should serve as a, a warning to us, a warning to our hearts about the hypocrisy of false advertising in regards to our lives. False advertising and fruitlessness. And the instruction to pray in faith is, is really this. It's a promise of hope for us. It's a promise of healing for those who will pray. That there is no obstacle that stands between us and the Lord that is too great for those who will come to the Lord. You just pray in faith. To be men and women of faith as Abraham was. No obstacle too great to the prayer of faith and a God who is just has no boundaries, no limits, no impossibilities. You know, I think there's a, a couple practical applications we can take from this. I want to give them to you this morning. One interesting one is this. Verse 19 says that this fig tree was, fig tree was by the wayside. It's by the wayside. A few years back, uh, Mrs. Giannakis, who's in the hospital right now, she's suffered a couple strokes. We need to just be praying for her. She, uh, she grows figs, and she gave me a fig tree one day when I went over to her house for lunch. And so we kind of nurtured and cultivated this thing and grew it on the deck, and now it's actually down in the yard. It's still in a big pot, but it's, it's getting big, and there hasn't been any fruit, and I got to say, I've been kind of disappointed, like Jesus going to the tree, you know, and all I find is leaves ever on the stupid thing. And uh, one of the things I learned about fig trees is this is that a fig tree needs cross-pollination to be fruitful. Needs another tree there with it. I don't know, some people call them male and female trees. I, I don't know the science between it all, but uh, the trees figure it out. And, you know, here's a fact of life. A fact of life. A lone fig tree will never produce fruit. And the scripture tells us this. Like iron sharpening iron, so one man sharpens another. In the Lord, you know, the writer of Hebrews said, let us consider how to stir one another up towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us 
Encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. You know, when we meet together, like this, this morning, right now, time of worship, prayer, time in the word, fellowship. You know, last Sunday, we, we came to the Lord's table together. There's something like a spiritual cross-pollination that happens. Iron sharpening iron. An encouragement of one another. Lone fig trees like the one in my yard, it's got all the appearance of health. It, it, it might fool others just driving by, you know, looking from a distance with all the appearance of health, but it's not fruitful. It's not fruitful. And, and there's no health spiritually for us in being a lone fig tree. We need one another. God's brought us into his family, into the body Peter said, like living stones, we're being fit together, being built into a house for God's glory. And so, you know, we need one another. That's, that's encouragement. That we come together, that we take advantages of time when the, the church gathers corporately to seek the Lord. Another application is this. It, you, know, you think about the fig tree. When's the first time a fig tree is mentioned in Scripture? Do you remember when it is? It's in Genesis. What did Adam take? When he saw sinfulness, he took the, the leaves from a fig tree and he covered up his nakedness. Now to me, I think, couldn't he have made a better choice for some clothing? Those leaves are a little rough. It's like sandpaper. I might, probably had a little bit of chafing going on, you know, like the poor guy. And, you know, when in the scriptures... We first meet Adam and he goes to the fig tree. What we see here is that he's, Adam wasn't looking for fruit. You know, he's called the first Adam and we call Jesus the last Adam. The first Adam goes to a tree and he's not looking for fruit. What's he looking for? He's looking for leaves to cover up. To cover up. That's the tendency of humanity. You know, we, we cover up our, I don't know, our, our, our nakedness with outward activity. We volunteer for this. We get involved with that. We fill the calendar. We find somewhere to serve here or there. We invest our time and our money in some charity or some ministry or some mission. But you know, it's easy that at its root, sometimes it's just a cover-up. It's a cover show. It's just a facade. And we do whatever we can to cover up because we we sense the shortcoming and it's like, God, what, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? Jesus is called the last Adam. The last Adam. He, he doesn't come to the fig tree looking for leaves for a cover-up. He comes looking to the fig tree for fruit. And that's Jesus. You know, Jesus doesn't care about the outward demonstration of my life and your life. He desires inner fruit. Inner fruit, fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Looking for faith. Looking to work salvation in your life and my life. Can you imagine, you know, just picture your life. Jesus comes to your life every day like he did to that fig tree and he's looking for fruit, inspecting, saying, spend time with me. Spend time in my word. Spend time in prayer. Gather with my people and worship me. You know, I think, look what Jesus finds when he comes and he inspects our lives. Just leaves? Just a bunch of leaves? I'm doing fine, Jesus. I'm involved in that. And I'm supporting this. And I'm going to this meeting, I'm doing this. And it can look really healthy on the outside, right? We, we all know this. Like, we're pros at this. Every one of us, we're pros at this. To look really healthy to others so that they might be impressed. But you know who's never fooled? Jesus. Like, he's like a pro fruit inspector. Okay? He knows how to inspect fruit. He knows how to search a tree for fruit. And the real question is, what's in our lives for him? And so this whole scene with the fig tree and the disciples was a practical lesson. It's a lesson about prayer. It's a lesson about faith. You think about the temple. The temple was to be called what? A house of prayer. What are we? The temple of the Holy Spirit. 
This life, your life, should be a house of prayer. The nation was to be a believing people. They were to be a people of faith. Prayer and faith were missing. The house was void of prayer and the lives were void of the fruit of faith. And we have to avoid that same peril of fruitlessness. And by the way, we have times where we gather for prayer. I encourage you to come join us. Tonight, we're going to meet. An hour of prayer. 7.30, we're going to just seek the Lord. Get to know him. You know, we had a great week of prayer. It was really awesome. But there was something that was really apparent to us all this week. You know what was apparent? That the men were missing. That the men were not present at the week of prayer. I mean, just let the Spirit of God sink that into your heart. First time I'd ever say that about this church that the men weren't present to pray at a week of prayer. Guys, we got a chance to do that. Tuesday mornings, come, gather with us. I don't lay that on you as guilt. You know that. That's not my shtick, man. But man, these lives, the house of God, his temple, are to be a place of prayer, a house of prayer. What's the fruit of our lives? Jesus was to inspect this morning what does he find? All that we gather and we pray, I encourage you, come join us tonight. Come Tuesday morning, 7 a.m. So Jesus searches the tree. He searches the tree and he continues on his way with his disciples to Jerusalem. And now remember, just the day before, what's he doing? Kicking over tables, driving out money changers, the whole scene going on, driving out those who are buying and selling. The kids are worshiping him. Hosanna to the son of David. And Jesus has this confrontation with the teachers of the law. And I love Jesus because he's gutsy. Because what does he do? Guess where he goes? Right back. After he's kicked over the tables and all that stuff. You know, staying away like a chicken. He goes right back to the place of this confrontation, right back to the temple. In verse 23, it says this. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? So the chief priests, the elders of the people, they were the leaders. They were the spiritual leaders. They were the, you know, the custodians of the temple, the spiritual custodians of the temple and so as they come to Jesus in the temple, what we need to know is this isn't a little confrontation. This isn't a little discussion. Jesus is sitting there. He is teaching the crowds. They're in the temple. And this is, this is really an official delegation. They come. They're going to question him in front of the people. In front, it's, like, it's almost like a court in a sense. And they ask Jesus in regards to his authority. Who gave you the authority to kick over tables and do this whole thing, you know? We didn't give you the authority. We're the custodians. We run the show here, man. God, we're the leaders. Who gave you the authority to come in here and do this? Where did you get this authority? What gave you the idea that you could act outside of our authority? And so verse 24, Jesus answered them. And he said this, I also will... Ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. From where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it amongst themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He's so cheeky and cool, isn't he? Jesus counters their question with a question. Uh, I'll answer you, but first you answer my question. I'm just going to turn the tables on you. And he gives this question, the baptism of John. 
Well, where did it come from? From heaven or from men? And, you know, Jesus' authority, really the point is this. Jesus' authority came from the same source as John's. And so really with this question, he's answering their question kind of in an indirect way, answering their question with a question. But in doing so, he, he backs these leaders right into the corner. Like they're caught in a dilemma. You have to love it. They did not accepted John's ministry. You know, John, we know John the Baptist called them a brood of vipers. You brood of vipers. When will you repent, you know, and be baptized? The people, the common people, they, they, they loved John. Loved his ministry, responded to him, believed him to be a prophet. You know, in the kingdom of God, there's this principle. It's like, I, I don't know how you define it, but it kind of works like this. It's like, God doesn't give you more light until you respond to the light that he's already shed upon your life. It's like, be obedient in this area that I'm speaking to you about, and then I'll bring further revelation and further revelation. And if we can't be obedient here, then I'll take you around the tree one more time. And if you still can't get it, we, we'll go around. You ever get caught in those cycles in your life? I do. It's like, oh, right, Lord. That's what you were trying to teach me. Okay, now we can move on and learn something else. And so we're called to, to be obedient. But these, these leaders were not obedient to the first light, the message that came through John and John's baptism. And so, you know, get the scene again here. The temple's filled with people. They're listening to Jesus teach. And if the, if the leaders answered that John was sent from God, then, you know, they'd have to admit the same thing about Jesus. Sick. What are we going to do? If we say John's from God, then we got to admit Jesus is from God. Of course, John identified Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The common people believed John to be a martyred prophet, and many believed Jesus to be the Christ. And so the leaders are caught in this dilemma with Jesus, and so they say this, we don't know. It's a game. They're like politicians, man. They're smooth, eh? Total politicians. And rather than just answering honestly, they play games. And so Jesus says, okay, then I won't answer you. I mean, you think about these leaders. They're lost, man. They're blind, self-seeking, worldly, bitter, unbelieving. Like, they're such villains when you read this, aren't they? They're like such villains. But here's the thing. Jesus loved them. Jesus loved those villains that were resisting him and were choosing unbelief refusing to respond to him. He loved them. You've you got to see that sparkle in his eye as he's asking the question and backing them into the corner. He, he loved them. He was going to die for them. You know, that fig tree represents Israel. Actually, there's two trees that represent Israel in Scripture. The fig tree represents present Israel in the present age, but there's another tree that represents Israel in the age to come. It's the olive tree. You see it also throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 11, that we're grafted in. Romans 11 tells us that in the coming day, the olive tree will turn to Jesus. We read about it in Zechariah. They'll look on him whom they have pierced and they'll respond to him. So here's these chief priests, the leaders. And this answer that they give Jesus, we don't know. And so Jesus leads them into a little lesson, three, three parables. This morning, we're going to look quickly at the first two parables. Next Sunday, we're going to look at the third parable. It's in chapter 22. You know, as we read this, uh, and we see what seems stunning to us, this refusal to believe from these leaders, this refusal to have faith. You know, think about it. Jesus given them three years of ministry to the nation. Miracle after miracle. Just all the things that were going on. All the things they could see. All the, wit the lives that they could witness that were changed. The glory being given to the Father all the time to God. And they still would not face the facts. They still wanted more evidence. 
It's like all the evidence was there, but they were still trying to mount up more evidence. And so Jesus launches into this series of three parables, and he's going to answer them, but he's going to do it indirectly. No, that's what the parable is. It's like an answer in a story that only those who want to see can see. You ask by what authority I do these things. Let me give you three, three parables that illustrate the authority of the Father, the authority of the Son, and the authority of the Holy Spirit. The authority of the Father that you've rejected, the authority of the Son that you're going to reject, the authority of the Holy Spirit that you are going to reject. And so this first parable demonstrates that they refused and they rejected God the Father. Check it out. Verse 28, what do you think? A man had two sons and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and he said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of the father? of his father. They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe. Two sons, the father's got two sons and he instructs them, to go and work in his vineyard. And the two sons really represent, we, well, Jesus makes it really clear for us, two classes of people. You got the religious elite, the leaders, and the other son represent the tax collectors and the prostitutes. When John came, John the Baptist, he came preaching repentance and baptism, repentance of sin and baptism, be washed and be cleaned. And the crowd showed great interest in the, in the message of John and in his work. The religious crowd, the leaders showed great interest in, in John, but they would not humble themselves at the message. They would not be baptized. They refused. The non-religious crowd, you know, the, Jesus says the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they responded to John. They repented of their sin. They were baptized. And really the religious leaders committed two sins. They would not believe John's message, unbelief, no faith, and they refused to repent of sin. I don't think they thought they needed to. We don't need to. Look at the leaves on my life, man. I'm healthy. I am healthy. But even so, you know, they, even when they saw how others were responding, they, they, they should have been convinced that the message of John was from the Lord. And again and again, they rejected clear evidence that was in front of them. And Jesus tells us here in this parable that this rejection of John was actually a rejection of Father God. This was a rejection of the Father. And so what does the Father do in his graciousness? What does he do? What does a gracious Father do? Does he send judgment? No, what he does, he sends his Son. He sends his Son. And that leads us to the next parable. Look at verse 33. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house, it's the father, who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants. And they went and went into another country. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Verse 37. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. When therefore... The owner of the vineyard comes. What will he do to those tenants? Jesus asked these leaders. And they responded, verse 41. They said to him, 
He will put those wretches to miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. I encourage you today, go home, read Isaiah chapter 5. This parable is essentially told by Isaiah too, speaking about the coming captivity in the Old Testament. It was a passage that was familiar to these religious teachers. They knew it. Jesus was retelling Isaiah chapter 5. And uh, you'll be stunned by the parallels parallels as you read it. And so in in this parable, Jesus is reminding the nation of God's blessings. Man, God had a vineyard. He, He prepped it. He did everything. Fences, towers. Everything was there that you needed. You think about the children of Israel. When they came into the, to the promised land out of Egypt, God brings them to the desert. They come into cities that are inhabited. They win victory. They take over. There's gardens. There's vineyards. There's, there's everything. You just move into the house. It's all there. The land of milk and honey. God gave them material blessing. He gave them spiritual blessings. And what did he ask? Bear fruit for my glory. Bear fruit. Bear fruit. And from time to time, he'd, he'd send his pro- prophets. Jesus calls them the servants in this parable. He'd send the prophets. But, but the people would mistreat the prophets. We know that. We can read the Old Testament. We see they threw them in prison. And they stoned them. And they locked them up. And they murdered them and killed them. And all these things happen. So what does the master of the house do? If I was the master of the house, you know, I'd send an army. (laughs) Take back what's mine. Destroy these wicked men. But the father instead makes a decision. I'm going to send my son. It's like sending myself. It's like there's nobody closer to me than my son. No closer representative that I could send of myself than my son. I'll send my son, and we'll get this sorted out. We can figure this out. We can make peace. They'll respect my son. And the reference, of course, is to Jesus, the son of God. He is the heir of the master's house. But instead of receiving him, instead of welcoming the son, Jesus in the parable says they took him, they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. It's interesting, isn't it? Sounds very familiar Because we know that Jesus was taken out of the city, crucified outside the gate, killed. And so everyone listening to the story that day as Jesus speaking to the crowd in the temple and speaking to these religious leaders caught up in in the drama. You can see they're eating right out of the palm of his hand. And they didn't realize that when Jesus asked them, what should be done to these tenants? that they were pronouncing sentence and judgment upon themselves. What will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And at that point, Jesus quoted from Psalm 118. He said, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. He's explaining to them, I am the son, and you are the tenants. They got it. Since they wanted to arrest him. You know, it's interesting that this whole chapter, it starts with the triumphal entry. It ends here with this, this quote, the stone that the builders rejected. Both that, that Hosanna to the son of David comes from Psalm 118, and this quote from Jesus comes from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 just sandwiches this text, it's another passage of scripture to go home and read today as you consider these things. 
there's a there's kind of a story in Israel's history. I don't know if it's factual, if it's rumor, but it's a good story. I think it's probably true. There's a story that when the temple was under construction, we know this, Solomon was overseeing all these things. And part of his instruction was this, that the stones be quarried very far away so that on the side of the temple mount, there was to be no sound of a chisel, no sound of a hammer. Everything was prepared elsewhere and then it was brought to the temple and it was set in its place. And, and so miles away, Solomon's quarries, they quarried these stones for the temple mount. They're, they're amazing to see. You can see them today. Some, you know, 40 feet long, 20 feet wide. It's like unbelievable. 20 times, some of them are 20 times the, the size larger than the largest stone in the Great Pyramid. They're unbelievable. You're like, how can men fashion these things and put them in place without a hammer and without a chisel there? We're living stones being built to the house of God. And so they're transported there and they're fit together so tightly that even today, thousands of years, you can't even slide a freaking butter knife between those stones, man. There's, there's, so tight, there's no mortar. They're just set in place perfectly. And tradition has it that one stone arrived on the scene and as they were putting the puzzle together there on the temple mount, no one could figure out where this stone was supposed to go. And so the builders rolled it off the Temple Mount area down into the Kidron Valley and they continued the work on the Temple Mount. And it was not until the foundation was completed that the builders discovered that, there were, that they were short one stone. And sure enough, the stone that they had rejected was none other than the cornerstone. The cornerstone. And here Jesus pulls from that tradition. He pulls from Psalm 118. And he says, haven't you ever read? The one who is rejected, the one who you're going to cast away is the chief cornerstone, the foundation stone. See, Jesus is our rock. Jesus is our rock. And either you will fall on him and be saved or he will fall on you and be crushed. And you will be crushed. And it's your choice. You know, the best option is to fall on him, right? To be broken. You know, you break a bone, that can be repaired. But if you get crushed, not much can be done. It's kind of life over, you know, if you get squashed. You know, you can fall on him and he'll break you, but then he'll heal you. He'll make you new. You'll be a new creation. Or you can choose to let him fall on you and you'll be crushed. See, like I said, there's kind of two themes that flow through this whole thing. And the first is this. You got to own or reject Jesus with your eyes wide open. He's not going to let you go blind through this. You're going to own or reject and it's going to be your decision. You can refuse to believe. You can just refuse or you can choose, you know, choosing to be blind rather than to see. You know, maybe even ask you this, what, what did you do with the last light God shined upon you? See, shining upon you the light of his son and you just refusing? You think you're going to get more light? You're going to get more evidence? What more do you need? Are you refusing to believe? And these men, you know, it's interesting. Jesus forced them into a dilemma. And he'll do the same thing to you and to me as we refuse him. He will force you into a dilemma. He'll answer you in that dilemma. And you're going to have to make a choice when you come out. That corner. Well, I don't know. No. I don't know is a no. I don't know is a no. And Jesus compelled these men to tell the truth about what they believed. And because they refused to believe, they were led to a place where they basically pronounced their own judgment upon themselves. See, Jesus is God's last appeal. It's like the last arrow in the quiver. Okay, last shot. It's nothing more than Jesus. Nothing less than Jesus. 
Jesus. I want to say, you know, I don't know. It's kind of my redneck kind of thing. He's the last bullet in the chamber. And to reject him is to pound your last nail in the coffin. See, he's a stone of stumbling. He's a stone. He's the rock of offense. And if you fall on him, there's mercy. If you fall on him, there's a touch of mercy. You will be broken, but a broken man can be healed. But let him fall on you, and you'll be ground to dust, crushed. There's no healing then. See, Jesus, he's the master of the ages, man. He's the the voice of eternity, the word of God made flesh. He is God's last appeal to you and me. If we reject him, there is nothing else. Look at verse 43. It's very interesting. When you consider all of the things that we've been seeing as we've been taking this journey through Matthew and week out and week out, we're saying this is a text about the kingdom of God and it's a, it's a book that declares that Jesus is king. Well, look what Jesus says to these men here in this situation. He says, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and it will be given to people who will produce its fruits. Wow. That's harsh when you think about this whole message of Matthew, this message that that the kingdom is at hand. And now Jesus says, the kingdom will be taken from you and I'm going to give it to people who will produce its fruits. Look at verse 32 with me. It says this, right at the end. Actually, we'll read the whole verse. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your mind and believe him. Two great things, right in the end of that verse, to change your mind and to believe him. Change your mind. That, that's repentance. That's what the word repentance means. It means to change your mind. You're going to change your opinion about something, change your thinking about something, and you're going to turn in another direction. And when the Bible talks about repentance, it's saying you have to change your mind in regards to sin. You have to say, no, no to sin. I'm changing my mind about sin, and I'm turning away from it, and I'm also having a change of mind, just from changing my mind about sin, I'm changing my mind about Jesus and I'm turning to him. From sin to Jesus. Repentance. And repentance is combined with something in the scripture. When we repent, it's combined with faith. It's to be combined with faith. It's not like, like we talked about this abstract thing. It's not, I believe that I believe. No, it's we put our faith in someone in a person, in Jesus Christ, in the gospel. And you know, this morning, that, just, that truth, that reality lays in front of every one of us. It's like whether you know Jesus or whether you've been serving Jesus for a billion years, roots of unbelief can take ground, ground, just get grounded in our lives. And the questions are this morning is this, are we prepared to just believe Jesus? We talked about this last week. Nothing more, nothing less, just to look to him. To repent of sin and turn in faith to him. What's he looking for? My life and your life? Fruit. Fruit. Let's produce it for him and for his kingdom. Let's pray. Worship team, I'm going to invite you guys to come. Would you guys stand with me?